0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, I'm Producer Jay. This is Darts and Letters. Or, well, today and tomorrow, actually, it is Cited. That's the documentary series that we did before Darts and Letters. We're about to play you a story about a place in the US where your home can give you cancer and children are born with deformities with alarming regularity. It's the forgotten story of a town built on the glory of the atomic bomb and the toxic legacy of a mismanaged nuclear site. We're playing this pre-darts episode because it fits with our week's theme of the politics of tech and techno-utopias. And in the 40s and 50s, our nuclear future did look like a techno-utopia. But the town in this story shows us the other side, a different and darker side. We're playing you our favorite episodes from our catalog until we relaunch Darts and Letters with a new season on September 18th. If you're enjoying listening to us on New Books Network, we'd appreciate it if you go find Darts and Letters in your podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For now, here is part one of Cited, America's Chernobyl.
2: I'm a member of what's known as the low-use segment of the population. We're basically guinea pigs for the atomic age. We're just the surviving guinea pigs.
3: I'm Gordon Kadok, and this is Cited. Oh, say can you see,
1: by the dawn's early light...
3: The local so beauty queen is standing in the middle of a cordoned-off street, She's blonde. She's wearing a red polka dot dress with a sash and tiara. She's facing an American flag hanging from a raised fire truck ladder. Behind her, soldiers. This is Richland, Washington. It's about a three hour drive southeast of Seattle. It's a smallish place, about 58,000 people. If you've never heard of it, well, it's not that well known. But I actually think it's one of the most important cities in the history of America.
1: Or the land of the free and the home of the brave.
3: And on this scorching September day, I'm here with the people of Richland to watch a parade.
4: All right, next up is the Richland High School Marching Band Bombers. city of Richland is proud of its history and traditions, and Richland High School Marching Band is part of that pride.
3: They're celebrating their town's contribution to the Second World War, and to the Cold War. It feels like a nostalgic costume party. There are Girl Scouts in green and in khaki uniforms from the 40s.
4: Now take a look at this 1954 bus that ran during the
3: Cold War era. I see antique buses, fire trucks, and a giant green tank looking thing.
4: All right, next up is the Tri-City Military Vehicle Club. What a sight
2: to see here.
3: But my favorite car of the bunch, an early 60s baby blue Ford Thunderbird. <laughs> and
1: Thunderbird has a name, Trudy Mae.
3: You won't believe who's in the car with Michelle today in the Trudy May. One of the original
4: Rosie the Riveters. That is right.
3: And to close out the parade, a sheriff's posse on horseback. And the pooper
2: scooper. Oh, big shout out to the pooper scooper. Hey. Couldn't do it
4: without
2: you. That's was.
4: right.
1: Thank you so much.
3: This feels full-on Americana. Think Jimmy Stewart or John Wayne, or the Great American Songbook. You know, Sinatra crooning to a song by Cole Porter or Johnny Mercer. The parade moves to a park down by the river, and a band plays all those old hits while dressed-up swing dancers do the lindy hop. life that I've heard of, but I'm too young to have actually seen it. You know, a booming post-war small town, a nice place built on solidly middle-class factory jobs, and a community that's mostly white, church-going, and salt-of-the-earth. It feels nostalgic, this post-war prosperity. But in Richland and the surrounding Tri-Cities area, it sort of still exists. Because of one reason, and that's really what they're here celebrating today.
2: I welcome you to Atomic Frontier Day. Today we are commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Manhattan Project.
3: We're honoring- Richland is a company town. The company is the federal government, and its product is plutonium.
2: About 75 miles northwest of Walla Walla, Washington, in an isolated expanse of open desert,
3: It began in December of 1942.
2: Civilization entered into a new age, an age from which it would never emerge the same.
3: Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Mathias was flying in a small military plane over rural Washington. He was about to start the largest and most challenging construction project in the world, so he needed a perfect location. He found it
2: here.
1: It is also here in 1943, where
2: vast herds of wild horses once overran the prairie, that the 400,000 acre government reservation of the Hanford Atomic Energy Plant was created.
3: What he saw below him checked all his boxes. It was big, big enough to fit three reactors. There was a nearby river to cool those reactors. But most importantly for Colonel Matthias, it's what he didn't see. It was one of the most sparsely populated areas in the country, perfect for a top-secret project. And so it will become one of the three Manhattan Project sites. 50,000 people would show up became a kind of scientific Las Vegas, a city in the desert born almost overnight. And it was a huge gamble. Colonel Mathias rushed the production of a plutonium production plant, the world's first industrial-scale plutonium production plant. But to the workers there, they were betting blind. They knew they were building something to help fight the war, but as to what exactly it was, they didn't know. To the vast majority of the workers there, it was just the product. That is, until August 6th, 1945.
1: A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. We have spent more than two billion dollars on the greatest scientific gamble in history. And we have won.
3: And three days later?
1: Here at Nagasaki, the explosion was concentrated on an area of one square mile. And even more complete destruction is said to have resulted.
3: The plutonium in the bomb dropped on Nagasaki came from Hanford. This was good news to Richland. The people here cheered when they finally learned what they had built. They believed that their work helped end the war.
2: The battleship Missouri becomes the scene of an unforgettable ceremony, marking the complete and formal surrender of Japan.
3: But Hanford didn't power down its reactors after the Japanese surrender. Because America had a new enemy, the Soviets. Hanford's plutonium would be crucial for winning the arms race. So the plant grew and the town thrived.
2: Hello, everybody, from Richland, Washington. Our NBFC camera and microphone are set up in the midst of the community which has grown more rapidly than any other in Washington state.
3: It became much more than a place to process plutonium. Hanford, at one point, had nine reactors. It was a power plant. There were 900 different buildings, and many of them were major scientific laboratories.
1: And there is a
2: tremendous amount of research going on here. At Hanford, biologists study the effects of radioactivity on fish. These experiments could be of tremendous importance, increasing their understanding of the processes of human life.
3: Richland became a scientific mecca. Truly, a city run by experts. More PhDs per capita than any other place in the U.S. Take that, Cambridge. And those experts ran everything. I mean, the government contractors who ran the plant didn't just run the plant, they ran the city, the police force, the newspapers, they even set prices in local shops. It was a total command economy. There was basically no free market and no freedom of speech. But you could be a working class laborer and still live the kind of life you heard about in those songs.
1: Once I get you up there where the air is rare.
3: Richland was offered a kind of devil's bargain good schools, good paychecks, good jobs, as long as you don't ask too many questions. They took the bargain. And here at Atomic Frontier Days, 75 years after the plant went live, the story is pretty well the same. Richland loves Hanford. You can see it everywhere. The bowling alley is called the Atomic Bowl, I ate at the Atomic Ale Brew Pub and Eatery. The high school team is called the Bombers and their logo is literally a mushroom cloud. I actually even met a guy with a mushroom cloud tattooed on his shoulder. These are Atomic Patriots. And today is about celebrating their atomic heritage. But there's another history that isn't being told here.
1: Sunday,
2: September 15th. Roadways on the Hanford side are currently bare and dry. It is 60 degrees with winds from the west-west-west of 8 miles per
3: hour. So I get in my rental car and I drive for about half an hour outside of Richland and into farmland. This message will repeat. for the forecast. I pull into an isolated road surrounded by cornfields. I drive down and I reach a small red house and there are these old cars scattered about the property. I'm here to pick up Tom Bailey. He's going to take me on a tour of his neighborhood.
2: You found it. I found it all right. How are you? I'm
3: great. How are you? I'm old. Winston, go lay down. So,
2: tell me where to go. Out the driveway.
3: Tom is in his mid-70s. He's a farmer. He's been a farmer all his life. He wears a ball cap, blue jeans, and he has Parkinson's.
2: It, uh, this is a bad time of the day for me. That's why I hesitated doing on this ride. Tinner in my voice goes away, and I talk like an old man and start shaking like an old man. It pisses me off, but I can't stop it.
3: We're driving around a farming community called Mesa. It's tiny, less than 500 people. They mostly grow corn and potatoes here. Hanford is just on the other side of the Columbia River. Tom grew up here, and as we drive past each of the modest farmer's homes, he describes the people who lived
2: in them. This lady had nine miscarriages. Mormon lady, keep going and her son's dying of cancer right now. He's married to one of my daughters. The next house, Ross and his husband and wife died of cancer, and the son went to Vietnam. He was a Marine in the Marine Corps, came home, got brain cancer, and died. This is the Bailey farm here. My two sisters have had cancer. All my uncles that lived here had cancer. My father died of cancer. My mother had cancer.
3: As we drive past Tom's childhood home, he tells me about all the cancer in his family. And then we just keep driving.
2: Turn right here. For that pivot, this thing, that's where uh, Judy Barrels lived. She got cancer and died. This is a Mormon family. They had one daughter with a missing elbow. The next house is the Johnsons. Both the Johnson girls take thyroid medication.
3: Tom remembers one neighbor after the other. Cancer, thyroid disease, miscarriages, birth defects, a kid born without an elbow. He's completely matter-of-fact about it. He calls this Death Mile.
2: There was a house here, a standing and Loma Forest. They both died of cancer, and their son, Johnny, he had sores all over him, all the way through school. Always infected, Pus head, we called him. That's mean. <laughs> uh, well, we were mean little shits. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, I was a mean little shit too, but none of my classmates had cancer. What's it like? I mean, did did you really not know that that that's not normal?
2: Oh, no, we thought it was normal. It's God's will, Grandma said. You just live till you get the cancer, and you die. Tom invites
3: me into his house, and we sit in his living room as the sun beats down on us through a big window.
2: They're going to bark, and i got two more dogs out here that will probably bark. Oh, a little barking never hurt nobody.
3: Right behind him, I see a computer desk with stacks of paper all over it. They're mostly about Hanford.
2: I'm a member of what's known as the low-use segment of the population. We're basically guinea pigs for the atomic age. We're just the surviving guinea pigs. He's
3: obsessive, even conspiratorial. I see the computer is on a webpage about UFOs over Hanford. The people I talked to before I arrived here, they warned me about this kind of thing. They told me that some of his stories may seem a bit outlandish. He grabs a stack of files. This is his research. It's about six inches thick. He's become an anti-nuclear crusader. But it didn't start out that way.
2: Oh, not at all. I was a redneck, beer-drinking farmer. I mean, long-haired people didn't exist in my life. I wanted to go to Vietnam. He starts telling me about his childhood. He tells me about one of his earliest memories, from when he was just seven years old. I remember looking out across the field, and here come a line of soldiers, and they had baseman-looking guys in the front with Geiger counters sweeping the soil, And they have a soldier behind without a suit, and he'd pick up a scoop full of dirt and put it in a gunny sack.
3: He had actually seen men like this before with their equipment sweeping the soil. One time they even gave him candy. It was normal. They just walk around his house doing these tests.
2: The way I take it is they had an accident and they were picking up uh, particles of ruthenium or flakes of plutonium. That's my guess. The stories that Tom
3: tells from his childhood, they're like if David Lynch did a morbid reimagining of Tom Sawyer. He tells me about seeing pink snow, about toxic tumbleweeds, about riding his motorcycle into a top-secret military installation and being chased away by soldiers. He tells me about his days as a
2: Boy Scout. Troop 151, Ringgold, Washington.
3: And that time on a camping trip that they ate sturgeon from the river, and everybody threw up?
2: Don't eat the sturgeon out of the Columbia River. That's a rule around here. Everybody around all the locals know it.
3: Tom was riddled by all these puzzling health problems growing up. He had a hole in his chest and sores all over him. And he had to take thyroid medication.
2: My mother fed us a thyroid pill every morning.
3: A little pill. Tom says that his mom was a stenographer for some of the Manhattan Project scientists. So he thinks that she must have known something that her neighbors didn't. But she wouldn't say. The Bailey family was pretty self-sufficient. It was a farm. They ate food that they grew in their own garden. They drank milk from their own cows. But Tom says the animals started to have these strange birth defects. They had deformed sheep, deformed ponies.
2: In the ninth grade, my science fair project, 8th grade, I'm sorry, the 8th grade at Eltopia, my science fair project was a deformed shell and pony cold. Looks like a lizard. Picked it up, put it in a fishbowl about this big, and we were melting wax around and sealed the top off. He brought
3: the fishbowl to school. He called this project Aberrations in DNA.
2: The judges were from, were from Hanford. They were pretty shocked. They kept talking to themselves quietly. Where did you get this? My pastor. Where do you live? Told him The next year, Tom switched schools. He
3: tried the project over again.
2: And we had a science class, and I thought, I'll get double credit on my science project. Everybody looked at it, and laughed, thought it was funny here in hell. Science teacher, Mr. Rogers, called Hanford, and they came and picked it up.
3: You must have. You pissed
2: off that they took Well, it was my science project, but I got an A. <laughs> Mr. Rogers felt sorry for me and gave me a grade. Despite the mangled Shetland
3: pony, the family cancer, and all the local birth defects, when Tom would ask questions, his family dismissed it. God's will.
4: I think my editors describe me as being really stubborn.
3: This is Karen Dorn Karen lives in Spokane, Washington. That's up near the Idaho border, about a two-hour drive northeast from Tom.
4: In my early career, I was a public um, television producer and on-air reporter. And then when I went to the newspaper, I was, I was very interested in environmental issues. And that's how I got hooked into the Hanford stories in the first place. Karen
3: had been digging around Hanford for a while. She published one piece about safety concerns on the site, and people started to pay attention. People started calling Karen, giving her tips. One of them
4: was Tom Bailey. I thought he was really an interesting character, really. I mean, you know, he was very opinionated. I couldn't quite tell what he was trying to tell me about Hanford, but um, I was really intrigued by him.
3: Karen wasn't sure if she could trust Tom. She didn't want to drive all the way to Richland for nothing. But Tom was already headed to Spokane, where Karen lives. Tom was there to have some words with his congressman. He didn't make that two-hour drive to complain about Hanford, though.
2: They had put a power line through this farm. See that tower out there? And I was pissed off about it, so I went to this fundraiser to bitch to my congressman. It was a swanky cocktail fundraiser with all the local
3: bigwigs.
2: And I got in an argument with the dean of Washington State University and upset the whole fundraising event.
4: Well, he had uh, quite a bit of wine, so he was kind of louder than than I learned later that he usually is.
3: Karen saved the party. She took Tom upstairs to cool him down, and then she asked
4: him. I asked him if he was worried about living so close to Hanford. And um, he just made a sarcastic remark. He said, Well,
2: Hanford never does anything except kill and deform a few sheep once in a while.
4: And of course, I was intrigued by that.
2: She said, Really? Yeah? Can I come down and see you sometime? Sure, little gal, come on down. And the story just unfolded. Tom gave Karen a tour of the neighborhood,
3: just like he gave me. And then he introduced her to the neighbors. One of them was a man named F.R. Chen. He worked for the local water district.
4: And he said, oh, yeah, back in the, you know, in the 60s, I saw um, confidential memos about how you shouldn't eat whitefish from the Columbia River because they'd been eating radioactive moss out of the effluent of one of the reactors. And that was classified information.
3: Maybe that's why Tom and all the other Boy Scouts threw up on that camping trip.
4: What this man, Mr. Chen, did was no longer feed his children any fish out of the river, but he couldn't tell his neighbors because he would have lost his job.
3: And maybe that's why Tom's mom never said anything. Tom also introduced Karen to Leon and Juanita Andrzejewski.
4: They said, well, we'll be keeping a death map.
3: A death map. Juanita spread the map over her kitchen table. It was hand-drawn. And on it, there were all these little marks. X for heart attacks, circles for cancer. There were 35 Xs and 32 circles.
4: And I had never seen anything like that before. You know, the the narrative at Hanford was always, you know, everybody in this area supports us and nothing's wrong.
3: As Tom is driving Karen back, it starts to dawn on him. We're in the car again and Tom points out the spot where he was with Karen, the spot where it all clicked.
2: Right there is where Karen seal, I said, stop the car. She said, what? Karen, it's just dawning on me. This place is contaminated. She said, yeah, I know it. I said, "It it really is, isn't it? She said, yes, it is. I didn't know it.
3: You hadn't. You hadn't really put the pieces together.
2: No, I didn't put the two together. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was funny.
3: What's funny about that?
2: Well, everybody has it. You just say, "Have you had your thyroid medicine yet?" It's kind of a joke.
3: Karen wrote an article about her tour of Tom's neighborhood. It came out July twenty eighth, nineteen eighty five.
4: And uh, the headline of the Sunday Spokesman Review article was um, Downwinders Living with Fear. Do you want me to read uh, like the first graph or two of it? Or, or... Okay. So this is how the story started. Uh, farmer Tom Bailey stood amid shoulder-high corn on a bluff overlooking the Hanford Nuclear Reservation.
3: The photo shows Tom, hands on his hips, looking a little like Robert Redford. And there's a hazy outline of the plant in the background.
4: As a dust storm swept a huge brown cloud across the nuclear reservation, Bailey remarked, this is the funnel, and we're the Hanford downwinders. And that two-word description, the Hanford downwinders, would stick.
3: Karen writes about how these people downwind from Hanford had elevated cancer rates and inexplicable thyroid issues. She also writes a sidebar.
4: The night the little demons were born, and this is how it started. Nels Allison vividly remembers the gruesome sights in his lambing shed during the winter of 1961. They looked like little demons, Allison said of the strangely deformed lambs born dead that year. The bones of the tiny animals were set so rigidly that Allison had to reach inside the ewes and break the bones to get the lambs out. The ewes died as well. More than 100 other lambs on at least six nearby farms also were born severely defective the same year.
3: When did things change for you, like politically?
2: What's the date on this article? 1985. July 1985, that's the date I started asking questions.
3: Tom becomes the poster boy, the most high-profile critic of Hanford. He even gets national media attention. But his neighbors resent him for all of this. And as we drive past their homes, I try to understand why.
2: You gotta remember, I, the only people that I represent are the dead. Turn left. The dead, the dying, and the unborn. Those are the only people I speak for. So when people are healthy and they're making a good living, they want me to shut up and not, not take a chance of Scaring people into not eating the crops.
3: Right, because if they admit it to her themselves, their livelihood.
2: Yeah, you're right, Tom, but just shut the fuck up. Leave it alone. Forget about it. Even my mother said it's past. Forget about it.
3: Even with your siblings uh, having cancers, your mother would say,
2: forget about it? Yeah, because history, she said
3: When Karen's article comes out, people in the area are angry. Not at Hanford, but at Tom. People would flip him off, try to start fights. His bank tells him to stop talking to reporters and then they pull his credit. He says he even receives death
2: threats and that he's run off the road. I was a pariah in the community. Boy, people hated me. All those people that talked to me, gave their stories to Karen. They said they wish they'd never seen me. And a group formed, a group called the Hanford family.
3: They were mostly managers and supervisors from the plant. They wrote letters to the editor calling Tom a liar.
2: When I first got him, they hurt my feelings. You know, really, they really—they stung like being hit with a whip. He kept most of them in that folder of his. Read this one. I urge
3: that you view this Hanford Dan Winder more as a storyteller than a safety expert or a farming expert for that matter. Sincerely, Michael R. Fox, Ph.D., President, Hanford
2: Family. I love it. I immediately said, I'm no longer a farmer, I'm a storyteller. Because that's what I am. I'm not educated. I can't talk about radionuclides properly. You can challenge my educational skill level. I'm a storyteller. All I can do is tell a story about what I saw when I was growing up as a kid.
3: Is Tom just telling stories? Or is there something strange going on at Hanford? After the break, we lift the atomic curtain. I'm Gordon Kadic, and you're listening to Cited. back in one minute. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But like Jay said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. Tom Bailey, the storyteller, was telling strange stories from his childhood, but what did they all amount to? What did they say about Hanford? What did they prove? There had never been any big explosions at Hanford and no official warnings. But Tom and his neighbors lived downwind from the plant, and so many of them were sick. This couldn't all be a coincidence. Was it a leak? Was it toxic dumping? Tom didn't know, and he certainly didn't have any proof. So he and Karen Dorn Steele, the journalist, they were pushing for government documents. They wanted to find a smoking gun. There was also this anti-nuclear group in Spokane, the Hanford Education Action League, or HEAL. They wanted to know too. But the government didn't give in. Hanford is safe, they said, and we aren't gonna give away our nuclear secrets. You have to remember, this isn't just any old power plant. It's where the U.S. makes most of its plutonium. But someone else didn't like what was going on at Hanford. Somebody on the inside.
0: And you're, you're with Sighted, is that what it is? I, I like the name because my grandson always says to me, Papa, I'm so sighted.
3: Casey Rood is a family man. In 1985, he's got three kids in elementary school and another on the way. A journalist once described him as, quote, a pretty demanding children's soccer coach. Casey is a nuclear safety inspector. For a while, he hopped around from different commercial nuclear power plants. And then this job at Hanford came up. It was a little different, though. You know, weapons-grade plutonium.
0: You know, I had a lot of people who were anti-nukes who would debate with me. And my attitude was they're going to do it whether I'm there or not. So I might as well be a person who helps them do it correctly. Plus, the community was comfortable. This
3: is just what he needed to raise a young family. So he took the job. He was hired by Rockwell. That's a private contractor that ran the plant on behalf of the Department of Energy. He became their lead safety
0: auditor. We're talking nuclear safety from a standpoint of worker protection, environmental protection, and protection for the public from not only the nuclear weapons that we produce, but from the waste that we produced to create the nuclear weapons. The guy who hired me, the manager of the audits organization, was getting ready to retire, and he had a guilty conscience for not doing their job for the last 10, 15 years he was in charge. He basically turned the dogs loose and that was me.
3: Of course, it's not like they sat him down and said, listen, we've been neglecting the rules for decades. But he found this out pretty quick.
0: It was a complete
3: chaos when I got there. For example, the pipes that move plutonium around, Casey found out that the plans for them had been written on these little memo pads.
0: And when I interviewed the engineers, they said, they're not giving us time to do any, any calculations or anything. So they're just asking us to do our best guess. If something went wrong with those pipes... It could either have a catastrophic accident, it could have a criticality where it would kill everyone in the plant, or it could have an explosion that could result in, you know, a 700-mile-long cloud up into Canada.
3: He even saw employees illegally dumping nuclear waste directly onto the ground, where it could just blow away. So that was it. The dogs are out. In his first audit, Casey compiles a list of nearly 30 violations. Some were so serious that he tells his bosses the plant must shut down, immediately.
4: And
0: I'll never forget this guy, John, came in and he looked at that and he looked at me and he looked at my boss and he had his minions with him behind him, had a room full of people. And he picked up the book with all the findings in it and he slammed it down on the table. He said, "It, it, 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 you know, There's no fucking way that we will even respond to these findings. Get the fuck out. And that's the words he used to me and my boss. I don't know how to say this, but just to say it, they wouldn't say poop if they had a mouthful. That was the requirement. Got to have the right degree. But more importantly, you're not going to oppose the system as it is. Casey was hired to be a safety auditor. He quickly learned his
3: real job was to shut up. But he wouldn't. So his bosses tried a different tact.
0: They brought in our vice president. They brought in all the general manager and everybody and all the plant managers. And they promised, I promise we will get this. We got this. We will fix these problems. It's really going to be okay. And we promise we'll fix it. Give us three months. Three months.
3: Casey gives them three months to get their act together. Tom, Karen, and that activist group Heal, they keep pushing for government documents. Eventually, the state of Washington gets involved too. They start pressuring the feds for environmental records. Everyone's trying to figure out what's going on at Hanford. What's behind that veil of government secrecy? the public pressure was just too much to ignore. So, in February 1986, the Department of Energy relented. Michael Lawrence, the DOE's manager at Hanford, he calls a press conference. They
4: put it in a fairly small room so it had this feeling of being very, very
3: crowded. It's packed. State officials, activists, journalists from all over the region. Michael Lawrence stands beside this massive stack of papers. I mean, 19,000 pages of freshly declassified documents.
4: Yeah, it's about three feet, about three feet tall, yeah.
3: They're in these big bankers' boxes. He's following a time-honored tradition of government departments everywhere. Bury your critics in paper. He stands in front of that room and he says, these documents show that Hanford hadn't harmed anybody. Hanford has, quote, nothing to hide. Karen grabs her banker's box of documents and runs into another room with this guy, Tim Connor. Tim's with the activist group Heal. They're rushing through the papers looking for something.
4: Frantically looking through, going back to, you know, as far as we could go back to the World War II years, the late 40s. It was actually Tim who said, look at this. And he handed me the, 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 the document.
3: It said radioactive contamination in the environs of the Hanford Works for the period October, November, December 1949.
4: It had maps on it that showed radiation plumes that went all the way, not only from in the Tri-Cities, all the way to Spokane, you know, a two-hour drive away, and all the way west along the Columbia River, uh, almost to Portland. And so we both looked at each other and thought, Wow, what is this?
3: This is the piece of paper that changes everything. Because it reveals a deliberate experiment.
4: From December 2nd to the 3rd of 1949, the U.S. military ordered a Hanford plant to deactivate the filters that kept radioactive iodine out of the air, allowing a huge radiation cloud to blanket our region.
3: That experiment was known as the Green Run.
4: The experiment's name, the Green Run, was a reference to the unusually hot or green fuel that it released into the atmosphere, including radioactive iodine-131.
3: Their plan was to track this giant plume of iodine-131 and see how it behaved in the atmosphere. This was a dry run for a spy operation. The Americans thought, The Soviets are using this same fuel in their plants. So if we deliberately release it above Hanford and track it, then we'll know how to track it in the USSR.
4: And that gave them a clue to determine how far away from the Soviet reactors their surveillance planes could detect the emissions from a plutonium separation plant.
3: But the experiment didn't go as expected.
4: The day the Green Run occurred, they were, the Hanford officials were very worried because it was a it was an unstable, stormy, rainy day.
3: The bad weather drove the plume onto the pastures below, contaminating the grass. Dairy cattle ate that radioactive grass, and the radioactivity ended up in their milk. Children drank it, and radiation ended up in their thyroid. In 1949, the year of the Green Run, Tom was two, this community was exposed to between 100 and 500 times the tolerance level for iodine 131. For Tom, this was his smoking gun. It meant that his stories weren't wild conspiracy theories or delusions. They happened, and the Green Run explained why. It explained why so many of his neighbors had cancers, why his mom gave him a thyroid pill every morning, why soldiers were picking up dirt from his farm. It explained the birth defects, it explained his science fair exhibit. And for Tom, it also explained why he survived.
2: All the good kids in my class, my first grade class, the girls that ate the vegetables and drank their milk, they're all dead. I lied about what I ate, and I ate Twinkies and Pop for lunch. Hanford poisoned their
3: food supply.
4: And it was outrageous. I mean, it it really uh, sparked anger in me that they would do this to people. It's just an outrageous exploitation of civilians in the rush to do something military that was deemed the mission at the time, but a mission that plowed full steam ahead with no consequences for, for the people. So yeah, it really... Frankly, pissed
3: me off. Karen combed through more documents as they slowly became declassified. And the picture that emerged from them was staggering. Hundreds of billions of gallons of chemical waste from Hanford was discharged into rivers, dumped into the ground, or stored in these cracked, leaking tanks. When you add it all up, there was enough radioactive waste in the soil to make 40 Nagasaki-sized bombs. Tom and his neighbors were exposed to more radiation than the children of Chernobyl. These farmers, they're some of the most irradiated people on Earth. But, like Tom's mom said, it's history, right? I mean, we're mostly talking about the 1940s and 50s here. Nuclear technology was in its infancy. What about the 1980s when these documents were actually coming out? Surely the plant is a lot safer then. That's what Casey Rude, our man on the inside, was looking at. Remember, he put together a pretty damning safety audit for his bosses, but they said, give us three months and we'll get our act together. Casey comes back three months later, and somehow
0: it's even worse. Plutonium was stored in drums in the hallway that had access for anybody and the and the, and the the double person uh, tamper indicating devices that are soldered on the drum where they're all broken loose and people were taking what they needed to fill their other drums. It was out of control beyond even when we first looked at it three months before.
3: So again, Casey writes up an audit. This plant isn't safe. His bosses call another meeting and they say again, We're going to try and do better. But can we all agree on this? Let's keep the plants running.
4: I
0: said, absolutely not. You have given me no justification to keep these plants running. So my demand is the same. The next day, they issued a interim memorandum with everybody that was at the meeting with all their names on it saying everybody there agreed that we would continue and they had my name on it. So I wrote a rebuttal memorandum back to them, officially signed and everything, saying, no, you need to shut the plants down.
3: His bosses are just clearly not listening. So Casey is confronted with a rather stark choice. He can stubbornly dig in his heels, or he can be the company guy. Just look away. Remember, he's 31 years old. He has four little kids. One of them is brand new. So just like the farmers around Tom who turn a blind eye, he has every reason to do the same. That's the carrot for Casey, but there's also a stick.
2: On November 13, 1974, Karen Silkwood, an employee at an Oklahoma nuclear facility, was on her way to meet with a reporter from the New York Times. She never got there.
3: Karen Silkwood was a nuclear whistleblower. Then she died mysteriously. Her death was ruled a single car accident, but her life was turned into a movie. Casey saw that movie. It came out right before he started his job at Hanford. But despite all that pressure, he still knew what he had to do.
0: It seemed like it was handed to me, like the stick was handed to me in a relay, and it was my turn to run with it. And if I dropped it, then I was dropping the protection of the public.
3: He decides to blow the whistle. He starts leaking parts of his audits to the Seattle Times, anonymously. And he also starts talking with his congressman.
0: You can't go out there and go after some stuff and work your way through the system. you got to hit the home run the first strike.
3: The company that ran Hanford at the time, Rockwell, didn't know what Casey was up to. But it did know these exposés in the Seattle Times were a major problem. So the bosses there needed Casey on their side.
0: I'll never forget the vice president came in and sat with me and he said, well, Casey, the president of Rockwell is gonna go on TV tonight and he's gonna say that you never asked the plants to be shut down. And I said, well, Jim, you can't, (laughs) that's not true. He said, well, you're either a company man or you're not. And the words he used for me, is just time to shit or get off the pot.
3: The very next day, Casey decides to drop his anonymity. He's going to go public. He sits down with Eric Nalder of the
0: Seattle Times. He came to my house, did seven hours of interview with me, with my brand new little son on my lap. It runs a front page story.
3: Hanford Auditor breaks his silence. But Casey's not in Richland when the article comes out. He's on a plane, on his way to D.C. to talk to Congress.
0: They were worried about the Rockwell security people not letting me get there, kind of Karen Silkwood stuff, because I was going to bring them my actual audits. So I flew under an assumed name, and I didn't know where to stay, so I ended up staying at the (laughs) Watergate, okay? And I woke up, I'm a runner, and so I woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning and I went for a nice run along the Potomac, watched the rowers out there.
3: While watching those rowers, Casey gets his thoughts together. He prepares himself for what he's about to do. There's no turning back. Once he does this, there'll be blowback. He'll lose his job, and who knows what this will mean for him, his wife, and his young family. But he knows he has to do it. That's next week. Unsighted season finale. Mr. Rood goes to Washington to take on Hanford.
0: There at the table, he said, "Casey, you're making me be more frank. I just, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but you know, we know, we know where your kids go to school. We know a lot about your family, and I, I, I can't assure the safety of them. I think something bad could happen to them if you keep this up. We go into the nuclear reactor."
2: Really nice to have you here this morning. Uh, you know, you're going on the B reactor tour this morning. I don't think they should bury it deep, deep down like that. They should bury it, just, just put it on the surface. It's not going to hurt anything, just put it on the surface. People are
4: afraid, oh, afraid of Oh,
2: they're afraid of anything radioactive,
3: but you know. The-, the downwinders struggle for justice.
4: Um, the government had accused all the downwinders of having radiophobia and that we were hysterical housewives with soap opera mentality. That is one of the things we were called by the feds. That is in the Federal Register, that statement.
2: The whole Hanford history is based on propaganda, feel-good propaganda. We did this, we accomplished that. We're the safest place on the planet. Nobody got sick. It's all a lie.
4: Um, At the end of our conversation, he said, you are part of America's nuclear holocaust.
3: This episode was produced by me, Gordon Kadik, and Polly Legere, with editing help from AC Rowe. Nicole Yakashiro was our research assistant, and Aurora Tejeda was our fact checker. Our theme song and original music by our composer, Mike Barber, and Dakota Koop is our graphic designer. Said its production manager is David Tobias, and our executive producers are Gordon Caddock and Sam Fenn. We'd like to thank historian Sarah Fox for helping us understand this history, as well as historian Kate Brown, author of the book Plutopia, Nuclear Families, Atomic Cities, and the Great Soviet and American Plutonium Disasters. Check it out, and also check out Michael D'Antonio's Atomic Harvest, Hanford and the Lethal Toll of America's Nuclear Arsenal. Both books were indispensable to us, and they really helped us tell the story. You can find links to those and other things at citedpodcast.com, But don't read ahead, because you might find some spoilers. I'd like to also thank the many other people we talked to along the way, including historians Linda M. Richards and Robert Franklin, as well as Pat Hoover, Trisha Pritikin, Tom Carpenter, John Fox, and Maynard Plahuda. This episode was funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. It's part of a larger project on the politics of historical commemoration. Professor Eagle Glassheim at the University of British Columbia is the academic lead on that project. Cited is produced out of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto, which is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Cited is also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for our season finale.